We're going to begin reading in verse number 1. We're going to read down to verse number 11, John chapter number 12. The Word of God says, Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper. You didn't know, but that's a good Bible word, amen, supper. There they made him a supper. Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, had the bag and bare what was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that Jesus was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. We'll stop there and pray this evening. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the truth of your word. I pray that you would use it in our hearts and lives this evening, that the Lord Jesus would receive glory for what is preached, for what is accomplished tonight. Lord, that in this sermon, in this service, there not be a touch of flesh upon it, but only that which uplifts and exalts the name of Christ. For it's in His name we ask these things. Amen. In John chapter number 12, we find a very different group of people than we find either in John chapter 11 at the beginning of the chapter or in the case of Mary and Martha back in Luke chapter number 10. Those really comprise the three main scenes that involve this little family of siblings that lived in Bethany. But they were evidently very close friends with the Lord Jesus. It would seem as though Bethany being very close, just a few miles from Jerusalem, uh, when that Lord was at Jerusalem or headed to Jerusalem or leaving from Jerusalem, when He was anywhere in the proximity of that city, He would often stop into Bethany and see this young family. And it seems as though He grew more familiar with them and, and grew more close with them than he did probably any other people other than the disciples uh, during his earthly ministry. And so it was no surprise that uh, not long before his death, about a week or so before his death, that he found himself in this uh, town once again. Uh, He's not in the home of Mary and Martha. Uh, The Gospel of John does not tell us this, but... Uh, The other synoptic Gospels do tell us that, in fact, he's in the home of a man by the name of Simon the leper. Uh, We don't know really anything about Simon for the most part. Uh, It could have been that Simon was a Pharisee at one time. There was a Pharisee named Simon that the Lord had reached and had changed his life. Later on, the Lord would upbraid that Simon. Uh, but we know that this Simon, whoever he was, he had been a leper at one time. Some commentators have liked to imagine that he might have been that one leper that came back when the other nine kept going. We really do not know, but we find just another of the people who the Lord radically transformed and eternally changed during His earthly ministry. And so as they're gathered in this house, uh, Martha is there and Mary is there and Lazarus as well is there. And Martha is serving, the Bible says. Uh, 
Mary is uh, at his feet once again. But this time she's not just sitting, but she is anointing his feet. And Lazarus is seated at the table. And it seems as though there's a crowd of people that have gathered around to hear the once dead man's story. This is a far cry from what we find about them earlier on. Turn over to Luke chapter 10 with me. Luke chapter 10. While you find your place there, I want to read a verse or a few verses that I want you to have in your mind as we walk through this passage tonight. Listen to what Paul said in Colossians 3. We quoted a little bit of it this morning. But he said this, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. Now there's a lot of preaching we could do out of those four verses, but can I sum it up by merely saying this? If we really believe that Christ is risen from the grave, if we really believe that we know Him personally, if we can really say with absolute conviction and confidence that we have partaken in that resurrection, then just like Mary and Martha and Lazarus, how could we ever expect that not to be the driving principle of our life? If we really claim to be living and walking in the resurrection power of God, the same power that raised Christ from the grave is the same power that transforms your life and mine, then how could that not be the prevailing truth that we carry with us day in and day out? You see, I think what we're really finding when we compare Luke chapter 10, and we could look in Lazarus's case at the early part of John chapter 11, where we were this morning, when we compare those passages with what we see in John chapter 12, I think what we find in John chapter 12 is three people that have really got a hold of the truth of the resurrection. It has molded and shaped and informed their life such that they are living in the reality of resurrection power and truth. Now when I talk about living in resurrection power, I'm not talking about speaking in tongues or trying to heal people. But I'm talking about the power of God that enables us to put aside the old man, to put on the new man. I'm talking about the power of God that causes us to desire Christ and His glory above all else. I'm talking about the power of God that bears us up when we're suffering or when we're struggling. I'm talking about the power of God that makes us more like Jesus. That power is the power we ought to be living in. Look in Luke chapter number 10. And we're just going to read four verses here. But I want you to see the scene of Mary and Martha prior to this resurrection truth. The Bible says in verse 38, Now it came to pass as they went, that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. So here in Luke 10, she's in her house. John chapter 12, she's not in her house, but in Luke chapter 10, she is. She had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her, therefore, that she help me. Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. If I could sum up what the resurrection truth did in Mary's life, the best way I could, the best picture I could paint for you 
is what the Lord says about Martha in John chapter 12. Now think about what we read in Luke 10. Here's Martha. She's surrounded by all sorts of work and responsibilities and obligations. Whenever the Lord, uh, or whenever the Bible says she was cumbered about. You know what that means? Cumbered about means surrounded by. Uh, imagine, has your house ever been cluttered and you're walking through it and you're stubbing your toe on stuff and you're tripping over things? If you got kids, man, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, they've got, why are all kids' toys little and sharp? Micro machines, Legos... Uh, and they'll leave those things around and you just everywhere you turn, you're tripping into things and you're kicking into things. You're trying. That's how Martha was living her life. Everywhere she turned, she was bumping into another responsibility, to another obligation, to another task that she had forgotten, uh, to another job that was too big for. She just everywhere she turned, she had responsibility. She looks over and sees Mary just sitting there cooling it, sitting at the feet of Jesus, enjoying, I'm talking about uh, whistling, uh, enjoying the day, enjoying the presence of the Lord. And that kind of gets to her. That kind of galls her. And she says to the Lord, do you not care? Do you not care? You know, I find that often when I get overwhelmed in life, my flesh wants to begin to lodge accusations against God. Nothing about that scene suggested that the Lord didn't care. But because she got her eyes on her problems instead of on her responsibilities, because she had, she made everything her responsibility. She put everything squarely within her jurisdiction, even things that didn't belong there. And then she got overwhelmed. And when that happened, she started to level accusations against the Lord. Don't you care? Why don't you bid my sister to come help me? And the Lord says, Martha, you've missed it all. Don't you understand those dishes will keep? Don't you understand? And by the way, I think there's been a tendency sometimes to read this and to make it seem like what it's saying is it's a bad thing to serve. I'm going to show you here in a moment. That's not at all what it's getting at. It wasn't that Martha was serving. It was the way she was serving. It was the spirit with which she was serving. It was the attitude with which she was serving. It, it, it was it was all of the worry and anxiety that she was appropriating and pulling onto herself and making her the one that was supposed to fix all the world's problems. And in doing that, she robbed herself of her joy and peace in the Lord. The Lord says, listen, you're missing it, Martha. Mary's chosen that needful thing. What you're doing is important. It ought to be done. But if you have to give up this, this serene calm and peace and contentment that Mary has at my feet, you see, here's what I'm getting at. It wasn't that she was at the sink and that Mary was at its feet. It's that Mary was at peace and Martha was not. And he's saying this, if you have to give up the peace in order to participate, then you're missing it. You're doing it wrong. I feel like a lot of times when we get burnt out and discouraged and frustrated and a bad spirit in serving the Lord, I can't help but think to myself, it's probably because we're serving Him in the wrong way. You know what the Lord said? He said, take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. He said, my, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come unto me, all you that are uh, that are weary and, and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. How does He give you rest? He gives you rest by putting His yoke upon you. It's not a burdensome thing to serve God if we're serving it in the right spirit, with the right priorities, with the right perspective, and in the right way. It's a thing that ought to afford peace to us. It wasn't a problem that Mary was at His feet and that she was uh, at the sink. The problem was she had given up what Mary had. What she was doing could not be sustained without what Mary had. Mary had peace. She had joy. She had contentment in the Lord. 
And so she could sit at his feet. She could work at the sink. She could do anything that she needed to do. She had the needful thing. The needful thing was not being at his feet necessarily. The needful thing was peace and contentment in Christ. She had that and Martha's struggling. And he says, Mary, she's chosen that needful thing, that good part. And you know what he says? It will not be taken away from her. Later on, the Lord says this to His disciples, My joy, or your joy, He says, shall no man take. We have to forfeit our joy. We have to forfeit our peace. We have to forfeit our contentment in the Lord. And when we do what Martha did, get our eyes on the wrong things, all of a sudden, serving becomes a burden. Yet, what does it say in John chapter 12? Her entire role is summed up in three words. Look at verse number 2. It says, there they made him a supper. Where was Martha? And Martha served. See, she's not left her activity, but her, her spirit and her attitude has been radically transformed. This is how I pinned it down. For Martha, the truth of the resurrection gave peace to her worry. She was a worried, troubled soul. But when we come to John chapter number 2, she's not troubled anymore. Or John chapter 12, she's not troubled anymore. She's doing the same thing, but she's doing it in a completely different way. Think with me about two simple thoughts here. Number one, I want you to think about her natural disposition. We find her operating in the flesh in Luke chapter number 10. And it produces two things. One, she was disturbed. The Lord said to Martha... You're cumbered, the Bible says about Martha, that she was cumbered about much serving. And when she comes to the Lord, she says, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid therefore that she help me. We might say it this way, she's all tore up about what she's doing and what Mary's not doing. Can I tell you something? If you're serving God, and this is all going to tie in with the resurrection, because here's the problem. We serve Him as though He is a memory instead of our Master. We serve Him as though He is a memory instead of our Master. And so we're trying to do right by His memory, when instead we should be trying to please Him as our Master. And because of that, oftentimes we get more focused on everyone around us. And we get to the place where when other folks ain't doing what they're supposed to, man, we get troubled, we get disturbed, we get discouraged. And we get our focus off of the Lord. She was disturbed. Then I can't help but see she was distracted. The Lord says, there's, there's an important thing, Martha, and you've missed it. In your pursuit of service, you have forfeited your peace in me. You know, it's so easy in serving the Lord to get our eyes on the wrong thing. And I think the reason is because there is a tendency to let our guard down because we feel a certain security and a certain safety and and, and a certain, uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? It's just such a benign thing to serve the Lord. We assume that if we're serving God, we must be doing it the right way. And I think there's a tendency sometimes to do what Martha did. You know what she would have been tempted to say? If it hadn't been the Lord talking to her, if somebody else had said, Martha, you're doing this all wrong. She might have just looked back and said, well, at least I'm doing something. At least I'm not Mary sitting there doing nothing. And sometimes we have this attitude that because we're doing something, we by default must be doing it the right way. And that's a quick road to getting burnt out. Because then we won't accept any admonition, we won't accept any correction, we won't accept any edification on the matter. And we begin to sort of build a wall around ourselves where we cannot be told and we cannot be touched and we cannot be reached 
with spiritual truth. And that's what Martha had done. She had distracted herself away from what was her true responsibility. You know what her job was to do? To please the Lord. Shouldn't have mattered to her what Mary was doing. The Lord would tend to Mary. Her responsibility was to please the Lord. We find her natural disposition. But in John chapter 12, we find her spiritual transformation. Three words, but they say so much. You know what they speak of? Number one, they speak to me of her faithfulness. Again, there's a tendency to sometimes look at it and say, well, I know what will fix Martha if she'll, if she'll leave the sink and sit at his feet. If she'll leave the work and go and sit at his feet. But the reality is this. Can't everybody sit at his feet? And can't everybody fit at the kitchen sink? There's got to be people in both places. And by the way, you need to spend time at both places. You need to spend time sitting at His feet. You need to spend time laboring in His field. We all are called to do both those things. But we find it was not what she was doing. It was the way she was doing it. It was the spirit with which she was doing We come over to chapter number 12, and you know what? She's doing the same thing she was doing before. She just now is doing it with the right spirit. Think about this. I pointed it out while we were reading it. In in Luke chapter number 10, she's in her own house. Now, some of you ladies, you know this to be true, but there is a certain sense of pride that most women have over the home. And, and they don't, if things are in a mess or if things are not in order, they don't like people coming over, they don't like people seeing. Heaven forbid anyone know that people actually live in your house. Amen? It's supposed to be a showroom. And, you know, and there's a certain pride that we take over. And no doubt that's how Martha felt. She probably felt like, man, I can't let the Lord come in here and everything be a mess. I can't let Him come in here and us not have coffee and cake. I can't let Him come in here and me not have a hospitable meal upon the table. All of her service was motivated out of obligation. She felt like, what will people say if I don't do this? But you know what we find in John chapter number 12? She ain't even in her house. She's in the house of Simon the leper. And yet, she's still serving. In in other words, let me put it this way. Now, she has no obligation to serve. So to her, service is not an obligation. It's an opportunity. To her, it is not a burden. It is a blessing. Now, it's not a question of do I have to do this. Now, it's a question of do I get to do this. Let me tell you something. You're never going to have joy in serving the Lord until serving the Lord becomes an opportunity instead of an obligation until you begin to view it as something that you're doing for the Lord. I told you a moment ago, the resurrection would play a big role in this. You know what the role is here in application for you and I? If we are merely trying to serve His memory, then that is a rigid taskmaster. But if we are trying to serve our Master, our only concern is that He be pleased. It doesn't matter if Mary's sitting there doing nothing. It doesn't matter if somebody's doing it wrong. It doesn't matter if somebody's over here not doing anything at all. As long as we are doing what God expects of us then we can find contentment. She recognized that there were more important things than running around worrying about what everybody else was doing. And she knew that her time was short with the Lord on this earth. And she recognized that here in this moment, she had an opportunity and she wanted to prove herself faithful. When serving God is an obligation, it becomes a cruel taskmaster. When it is an opportunity, it becomes an amazing treasure that we get to serve the Lord. Now, and you're going to say, well, preacher, who decides that? You decide that. The work didn't change. She was serving in her house. She's serving in Simon's house. There ain't no difference in what she's doing. What's changed is her attitude. Her attitude. 
I see not only her faithfulness, I see her focus. Three words, Martha served. We don't find anything she says. We don't find anything that she particularly does other than just serving. She has melted into the background of the narrative. And she is only there in as much as the Holy Ghost wants to remind us that she's present in the background ministry. Think about the focus that she has. You see, in Luke chapter number 10, her focus is on her surroundings instead of on her Savior. Now, one would think that if Jesus had showed up at your house and was hanging out there and was spending time there, that that would probably command your attention. I mean, I'll be honest, people say sometimes to me, uh, people with little kids, and sometimes they'll come, they'll say, man, preacher, I'm so sorry that my kid was so loud in the service. And I always answer this way, and it's the honest truth, I always say, Man, I didn't even hear your kid. Just to be honest, I was up preaching. I wasn't paying. A a jet plane could have ran through the middle of this sanctuary. And I probably wouldn't have even noticed because I was just consumed with what I was doing. I wasn't paying attention to what everybody... People say that to me if they have to get up and slip out for any reason. Man, preacher, I'm sorry. And I didn't even notice. I didn't even see it. I was unaware that it happened. Because I'm consumed with what I'm doing and I'm paying attention to the message, you have to. Uh, listen, preaching's kind of like riding a wild horse. Uh, you got to pay attention 100% of the time, real buck you. Amen. And so I'm just consumed with it. And one would think that if Jesus had showed up in your home, you probably wouldn't take your eyes off of Him. But that's not what we find in Luke 10. In Luke 10, she's barely even noticing that He's there. In other words... She is so bothered by what Mary is not doing that she is missing what Jesus is doing. She is so bothered by Mary's silence that she is missing the Lord's spoken word. Let me tell you, man, that's when your joy leaves you. It's when you get more focused on what people aren't doing or are doing wrong than you are on what God is doing and is doing in an excellent way. If we can get our focus right. You say, well, preacher, what makes the difference? The truth of the resurrection makes the difference. Man, if you realize that Jesus is alive, that He's working in this place, that He that He is stirring hearts, that He is mighty and powerful to, to change lives, to save people, to answer prayers, to work miracles, how could we ever get distracted with people's failures or people's wrong behavior? How could we ever take our eyes off of our risen, living, amazing, powerful, miraculous God for even one second to take notice of what somebody else is doing? Now, she has her focus on her Savior Instead of on her surroundings, she ain't paying attention to what's going on. She's got her eye on the prize. But then think about this. She is now focused on what she can do for others instead of what others, what she can derive from others, what others can do for her. So in Luke chapter number 10, she's saying, Man, Lord, why don't you get Mary up and get her to come give me a hand? There's dishes to be dried, man. There's pots and pans to be scrubbed. There's food to be put away. There's Tupperware lids to be found. She ought to be in here working, laboring. But now, she's saying, where can I step in and meet a need? Now she's more focused on what she can do for other people, including the Lord. You know, when you recognize that He watches everything we do, that that's going to do two things. Maybe both things at the same time. It's going to terrify you, but it's also going to comfort you. 
to recognize that, man, when I do wrong, the Lord sees it. Nothing escapes His eyes. Nothing escapes His awareness. But also recognize when I do something right, when I'm living for the Lord, when I've got the right spirit and the right heart, even if nobody else sees it, even if nobody else understands it, even if nobody else acknowledges it, the Lord sees and He knows and He acknowledges. That then motivates us to quit worrying about everything else and find peace and contentment in serving God. What she was missing, what Martha was missing in Luke 10, she found in John 11, and it's on display in John 12. In Luke 10, she's worried. She's worried about everything. She's worried so much that it has robbed her joy from her. And, and she's sort of, I mean, I'll be honest with you, when you look at her in Luke chapter 10, you're kind of like, well, that's, she's kind of a nag, you know? She's kind of a jerk. Uh, she's somebody that just wants to fuss at people. But you come over to John chapter 12, you say, man, look at the serene spirit with which she's serving the Lord. Martha served, gave peace to her worry. But then think about Mary. Again, I think just as we have a tendency to see only bad in Martha in Luke chapter 10, I think we have a tendency to see only good in Mary in Luke chapter 10. Now, I just read it. I'm aware of what the Lord said about Mary. I'm aware that the Lord said, Mary hath chosen that good part. It will not be taken away from her. One thing is needful. And I see that Mary had a lot right. But when I see the Mary that's in John chapter 12, and I compare that Mary to the Mary in Luke chapter number 10, I, let's say it this way. I, I, think, I think the Mary in Luke chapter number 10, I think she's a good Mary. But when I see the Mary in John chapter 12, I think, man... She's really something outstanding. Her spiritual development has grown in leaps and bounds. Think about this with me. Look at John chapter number 12. Look at verse 3. The Bible says, Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped His feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. She takes this ointment. The Bible describes it as being in a box in other Gospels. And she takes and breaks this box open. And she pours this very costly ointment upon the Lord's feet. And she just sits there and weeps. And she takes her hair. Now remember, the Bible says in, in, in I believe, first it's either first or second Corinthians, that a woman's hair is her glory. She takes that hair and she begins to wash the feet of Jesus. And this is a, 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 a deeply, and I don't, I don't want to make it seem lewd or crude, I don't mean it in that way, but it's a very intimate moment, spiritually speaking. She is owning the Lord as her Lord and Savior and Master, and in pouring out that spike nerd, it's as though she's pouring out herself as a complete and total sacrifice for His praise, for His worship. Now, when we see that Mary, we compare that Mary to the Mary in Luke chapter number 10. You know what we see in Luke chapter 10? She's at His feet, but she's just sitting there. Let me say it this way. For Martha, the truth of the resurrection, it gave peace to her worry. But for Mary, it gave passion to her worship. She's at His feet in Luke 10. But man, it's a totally different Mary when she's at His feet in in John chapter number 12. And you know what the difference is? Because in John chapter 11, she's also at His feet. Whenever He comes to uh, Bethany and He comes to that grave scene, the Bible says that Mary goes and she falls at His feet and she grabs Him and worships Him and weeps at His feet. 
And she says, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. She sees the resurrection of her brother. And just a few short days later, evidently it would seem, I'm not trying to read something in Scripture that's not there, but it would seem as though probably this was given as a gift in honor of what the Lord had done for Lazarus, but also in anticipation for what the Lord was going to do in going to the cross. For later on, he says, she's given me this, she's done this against my burying. Can I tell you something, that when we really grab hold of the truth of the resurrection, it'll change the way we worship. We will go from being merely an attentive spectator to being an active worshiper. You know, part of the problem with church in general today is we have missed the concept of what church is. I had somebody talk to me the other day and, and, and they were concerned about some of the things not in our church. They weren't our church member, but it was somebody that goes to another church and, and they were just talking about the way church is. They go to an independent Baptist church, a solid church. Uh, they have sound doctrine and they were just talking to me. They're like, I just don't understand why we do the things that we do. And I'll never forget one of the things that the person said to me is they said, the dichotomy of we all come in and we just sit down and a man gets up and speaks and we just sit there and absorb it. He said, I don't believe that's scriptural. I looked at him and I said, well, I don't believe it is either. He said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, I'm not advocating for a house of chaos. I'm not saying that it needs to be 18 sermons every time we come to church and people jumping up and starting singing in the middle of everything. And There's churches like that. They can pastor however they want. But that's not what I mean. I mean this, that being in the house of God and being sitting under preaching is not a passive thing. It's an active thing. It ought to be that when you and I are sitting under preaching, that our mind and our spirit are constantly searching our life, our, 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 our way of living, our actions, our history, our, our record, our testimony, and asking ourselves, what is the Lord saying to me? I'm not here by coincidence or accident. I'm here by providence. So, so what is the Lord saying to me? Is there something in my life that I need to get right? If we'll come with our ears open, not to the preacher, but to the Holy Ghost, and we can come, not in order that we might take something in, but in order that we might pour something out, then we'll find that church will be an experience that is brimming and vibrant with life. In other words, if we've just showed up to put flowers on the Lord's grave, it's going to be a dead place. But if we show up in order to meet with a risen Savior, then that'll change the way we go to church. For her, it gave her a sense of duty. Wasn't enough just to come and sit at His feet. Want enough just to absorb and absorb and absorb. You need that. I need that. We need to grow. We need to absorb. We need to take in. But you know what happens. Listen, anything that takes in all the time, it becomes bloated. It becomes worthless. It becomes corrupt. It becomes spoiled after a while. We all, we need to be taken in, but we all need to be pouring out too. Say, preacher, how do I do that? Well, we do that by giving parts of our life to the Lord. We do that by engaging actively in the preaching, by being vocal, by being passionate in the way we respond to the truth of the Word of God when it's presented to us. We do that by serving, by laboring in the house of God. We do that by giving. That's part of worship too, is the way that we give and the way that we tithe. We do it by being active in our relationship with the church. And if your attitude is, well... All I'm doing is just going down there and sitting and hearing a sermon. You won't be coming in here and sitting and hearing a sermon for very long. It won't be long and something will get you out. 
It gave her a sense of duty. Number two, it gave her a singular priority. She takes this alabaster box, she breaks it, she anoints his feet, and immediately Judas speaks up. And he says, whoa, whoa, why wasn't this sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? I find that interesting. You know why? It didn't belong to Judas. It didn't belong to Judas. Mary didn't come and say, here's 300 pence, do with it what you will. She bought ointment. She bought a box. She brought it to the Lord. She poured it out on Him. But Judas tries to appropriate what belongs to the Lord. And he makes an assumption that this thing should have just been taken and sold. Now, we understand his motive for doing it. But I find that, you know what he did? When he thought about the idea of that ointment being poured on the head of the Lord, when he thought about the idea of this gift being given to the Lord and not passing through the bag and not passing through the decision process, when he sees that, that riles him. And he says to himself, what a waste. That's what it amounts to. The Bible says in verse 3, it was very costly. Judas says, why didn't we sell it? You know what it means, right? When you say, well, why didn't you sell it? That's a way of saying, you wasted it. Why didn't you do something with it? See, he missed the fact that Mary had done something with it. He saw no value in the spiritual exercise of giving this gift of worship and praise. That's how the carnal man is. Listen, this ain't in my sermon, but the Holy Ghost brought it to my mind, so we're both going to hear it. You ready? The fact is, the carnal man doesn't understand giving. The carnal man, the natural man doesn't understand. The natural man looks at it and says, what a waste. The natural man looks at serving God and says, what a waste. The natural man looks at what we're doing even here tonight and says, what a waste. You could have been at home. You could have been resting. You could have been enjoying yourself. You could have been watching TV. Uh, You could have been uh, recreating and, and enjoying some leisure time and recharging. It's the spiritual man that sees value in what we're doing here tonight. The natural man looks at what's going on. And when I say the natural man, I ain't talking about two different people. I'm talking about that part of you and me that is unregenerate, that can't be redeemed, that can't be saved, that's going to have to one of these days be changed and transformed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The old man don't get redeemed. It's the new man that's redeemed. You listening? We'll have a theology crash course. That's all right. By the works of the law shall no flesh be saved. In my flesh dwelleth no good thing. That's what Paul said after he's born. Your flesh... Your natural man, your your Adamic nature, it doesn't get redeemed. It gets done away with. That's why the Bible says that He gives you a new body. That's why the Bible says that this body shall be changed like unto His glorious body. He transforms this body. The flesh don't get redeemed, but He changes it. He transforms it. That natural man, he always thinks it's a waste to serve God. There will always be a part of you when you commit to do something for the Lord. There will always be a part of you that says... What a waste. So what do I do? You ignore that part. Same way they ignored Judas. I don't know, but I'd imagine somebody said, Oh, hush. You don't know what you're talking about. That's what we do to our flesh. When the flesh tries to say, What a waste to go down to the church house. you got better things to be doing. We say, Oh, hush. You ain't nothing but cause me trouble anyway. I'm going to listen to the spiritual man. I'm going to listen to the new man. But for her, she takes this. I don't know how... Close, I've gotten it, but best of the figuring that I can do, 300 pence probably translates to about $1,200. 
which for a woman like Mary, who we don't know if she had any means really of earning a living, maybe she uh, took in wash, maybe she, uh, you know, uh, cooked, maybe she, we don't know what she did. There weren't a lot of economic and employment opportunities for a righteous woman in this time in human history. But we can probably guess that this $1,200 meant a lot to her. And she was giving it not because the Lord needed ointment, but because she wanted to in some way show her love and devotion to Him. And you know what happens when you realize that the Lord is alive, that He's risen, that He is powerful to save and to change and to transform, and that He loved you enough not just to brave the tomb, but to go out the other side of it, to raise incorruptible, then it will shift and change your priority list. And for her, it gave her a singular priority. I jotted it down this way. No sacrifice was too great. No gift was too lavish for the incarnate God. You'll find that whenever the resurrection becomes a reality in your life, all of the quabbling about whether you ought to serve the Lord, do this, do that, it'll become, it'll sit in the back seat. And you won't look at it as an obligation anymore, but as an opportunity. And you'll say, Lord, just use me. Look at verse number 7. The Lord says this, Let her alone, He said. Let her alone. I guess that's the all hush. Let her alone. Against the day of my bearing hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. It gave her a spirit of urgency. She knew she better give this to Him now because the crucifixion was coming. You know that when you get a real grasp of the resurrection. You'll find that there are several doctrines in the Word of God that are inseparable. They're just always found together. You know what some of them are? The incarnation is always found with the crucifixion. Whenever Christ was born, you remember that Simon said to Mary that a sword shall pierce through your own heart. The incarnation is always paired with the crucifixion. The crucifixion is always paired with the resurrection that He was buried, that He rose again. And you'll find that the resurrection is always paired with the ascension and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Always. When we recognize that Jesus is alive, then we must also admit that He's coming back soon. You remember what the angel said? This same Jesus, this same one, the one with the glorified body, the one that is flesh and blood that you've held, that you've loved, that you've kissed, that you've touched, this same Jesus, He'll come again in like manner as you have seen Him go. You cannot separate the resurrection from the return of the Lord Jesus. They are inseparable. And when we get a good handle on the fact that Jesus is risen from the grave, we cannot help but be imbued with a spirit of urgency to say this, if He's alive, then He's coming back soon. If He's coming back soon, then I better serve Him now because I do not know how much time I'll get. For Mary, it gave passion to her worship. What about Lazarus? We don't have to spend a lot of time talking about Lazarus in chapter 11. We spent time this morning. But we know that Lazarus is always denoted as a dead man in the Bible. That's all we really know about him. If if Martha is someone that is wound too tight, pragmatist, somebody that is always focused on the cold hard facts, and dare we say a little uptight, Mary is the dreamer. She is the person that seems to run on the fumes of emotion. Lazarus, we don't really have any descriptors. But we're just told in in chapter number 11 that the Lord loved him and that he was dead. 
The Lord comes and He raises him from his grave. You know, it's almost as though Lazarus' story begins with the resurrection. It's almost as though all there is to know about Lazarus is summed up in this simple statement. He was dead, but now he is alive. And he's got a story to tell. Let me say it this way. For Lazarus, the resurrection gave power to his witness. He's seated around this table. The Bible says that people had come from all over so that they could ask him questions. Wouldn't you? (laughs) Wouldn't you want to ask him questions? What was it like? What did you see? Were you aware? Did you know what was going on? Does it feel different now than it did before? What is the comparison? I always, we have precious people in our church that have lived all over, and I don't never travel. I mean, I hadn't, until a couple of years ago, I'd never been further than the Mississippi west and never further north than, uh, like, I don't know, uh, Carryville maybe. <laughs> I don't travel. People move here. I've done it to everybody. I've done it to Jerry and Jessica when they moved here. I did it to Al and Kathy. I, anybody that moves from anywhere, I'll ask them a thousand questions. I treat them like they've come from the moon. I'll say things like, do y'all have biscuits where you're from? Is all the tea there really unsweet? I'll ask them all these questions. I want to know the difference. I want to hear their testimony. I want to know what's different from before to now. Don't you imagine people wanted to know from Lazarus what the difference was? How did it happen, Lazarus? See, Lazarus, all we know about him is he had a testimony. And you know, I find this to be true, that the resurrection of Christ in our life, it gives every one of us a testimony. We were dead, but now we're alive. We have a story to tell about how that happened. The Bible says that they came, this is interesting, not for Jesus' sake only. Did you see that? Verse number 9. They came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom He had raised from the dead. Did it ever dawn on you that for some folks that are curious, that are seeking, that are interested, Jesus is not enough? I don't mean He can't save them. I don't mean He can't transform them. I mean this, they're not just interested in hearing about Jesus. They want to hear about what He's done in your life and in my life. And they're certain that they'll come not just for Jesus' sake only, but because they've heard what God has done in our life. They knew us when we were dead. They knew us when we were walking in unrighteousness. They knew us when we were walking in sin. And they want to hear us. They want to sit across the table from us. They want to hear what we have to say. They want to uh, learn about the power of God in our life. The fact is, there's some folks that will come because they just want to hear what a dead man, a once dead man, has to say. We see the testimony of Lazarus. Think about the assembly of Lazarus. Look at verse number 10. What kind of folks showed up to hear him? The Bible says that there were those that he riled that were there. The chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. Listen, if you walk in the power and reality of the resurrection, not everybody's going to be happy for you. Some folks are going to be convicted by the way you're living your life. Some people are going to be upset by the fact that you have a message and that that message is that they're not alright in and of themselves, that they're dead in trespasses and sins, that they need the life-changing, life-saving, life-transforming power of the resurrection. The preaching of the cross is an offense 
to them which perish. You know why that is? Because it reminds them that they're not good enough in and of themselves. It reminds them that they're dead. Mankind doesn't want to hear that. I don't know about you, but if Lazarus could have heard what they're saying about him when he was inside that tomb, he might have been a little offended. Martha said, you can't open that tomb. He stinks. But you know what? He did stink. He did stink. He was dead. He was corrupt. You know, the difference is we're going to lost people and we're saying, hey, son, you stink. Your life is rich. You're without help. You're without hope. Your life is a mess. And unless you uh, yield to the Lord and accept Him as your Savior, there's no hope for you. That's an offensive thing. Now, I don't think we need to be rude. Don't you dare go out here and say, my preacher told me to tell lost people they stink. But I am saying this, there is an offense to it. And there's some folks going to get riled. There's those that he riled. But then look at verse 11, man. Praise God for these folks. The Bible says, because that by reason of Him, many of the Jews went away and many believed on Jesus. There were those that He riled, but thank God there were also those that He reached. There were some folks that were looking for what lasts. There's some dead folks walking around trying to figure out how to get a new life. And when they came and sat down at Lazarus's table... He probably was not a brilliant man. He probably was not a scholar or a theologian. But he could say this, I used to be dead, and then the Lord spoke life to me. And because I was willing to listen, my life has been forever changed. And I sit here before you now, a testimony, because the Lord changed my life. I'm telling you this, if you'll sit around the table from folks, and if you'll tell your story of what God's done in your life, There'll be some folks get offended. There'll be some folks be disinterested. But there'll be some folks that'll be reached. I'll tell you this. Listen, the, the greatest hindrance to our witnessing is our lack of witnessing. The biggest problem with, with our witnessing is that we don't do it. I, I believe this, that if you commit yourself just to telling folks what God's done in your life, quit trying to be a theologian. Quit trying to have an answer to every question that they ask. I, I think it's good to be prepared. I think it's good to be well studied. But if you're waiting to have all the answers before you'll share the gospel with people, I hate to say, but you'll never share the gospel with people. That's not to say that we shouldn't strive to have answers. for. But if you're waiting, if you're saying, well, I just can't witness because I, I just, I'm just not aware. I don't have enough knowledge. I don't know enough Bible passages. Oh, that's an excuse. That's an excuse. All a dead man has to do is say, look at me. I, I ought to be dead. I ought to be in hell. Listen to what I was and listen to what God has made me now. There will be those that you reach. And then finally, oh, this was interesting. I see the testimony of Lazarus. I see the assembly of Lazarus. But I can't help but notice the legacy of Lazarus. I don't know that I've ever really noticed this until reading for this sermon and preparing for it. But look at verse number 12. The Bible says, On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees, went forth to meet Him, and cried, Hosanna! Blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when He had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy King cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not His disciples at the first, But when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of Him and that they had done these things unto Him. Look at verse 17 and 18. The people, therefore, that was with Him when He called Lazarus out of His grave and raised Him from the dead, bear record. 
For this cause the people also met him, that they had heard that he had done this miracle. So in other words, there were people that were at the tomb the day that Lazarus was raised. And they went out, man, they told everybody. And they got up a whole group of people and they all came and met the Lord. Haven't you ever wondered where those people came from? The Lord's riding into Jerusalem. This is hostile territory by this time in His ministry. He is not a loved public figure. Uh, the, the Pharisees are, are trying to uh, kill Him and they've already set a plot in motion to take His life. There were disciples that had used to follow Him that became offended when He talked about, you have to eat my flesh, drink of my blood, and they've turned and they've walked away from Him. In fact, He is so despised by the world and by people at this point that they're getting ready to nail Him to a cross and nobody says boo about it. He's not a well-loved public figure. So you got to ask the question, where did all those folks come from? All of a sudden, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem and people come out of the woodworks with palm trees and begin to wave them before Him and begin to lay them down in front of Him so that the donkey can ride across. Where did them people come from? I'll tell you where they came from. There was a group of people who were standing by Lazarus' grave. They had seen what God had done in Lazarus' life. And they say, man, you got to come see this Jesus you got to come hear my story. you got to come hear Lazarus' story. You've got to come see him as he rides into Jerusalem. The legacy of Lazarus was that the people that he reached and the people that they reached and the people that they reached were present on that coronation day. Now listen, on that day, the Lord rode on a donkey and He rode into Jerusalem to be crucified. And he was going to be crowned with a crown of thorns. And he was going to be mockingly called the King of the Jews. But one day, one day now, he's coming back to Jerusalem. This time he's not riding a donkey, he's riding a white horse. And this time when he comes, he's coming not to be crucified, but to be coronated. And this time when he comes, he's coming not for a crown of thorns, but for a crown of many crowns. And this time when he comes, it's not to be mockingly called the King of Jews, but to be acclaimed and shouted as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And can I tell you something? If you're willing to walk in the power of the resurrection and let the resurrection of Christ be the driving principle in your life so that everywhere you go, you tell folks, listen what God did for me. Listen to how He saved me and He's alive today and He can save you. And it could be on that day when they crown Him that there's some folks that was standing around your grave when you got born again. Some people that heard your story. Some people that came to know the Lord because you were willing to give them a testimony of what God had done in your life. And there'll probably be some people that they reached and some people that they reached and some people that they reached that are there on that crowning day all because you were willing to sit across from a bunch of tables or sit across from a table from a bunch of people and say, let me tell you what God did in my life. Let me tell you, I used to be dead. But man, He spoke life to me and He changed me and He raised me from the grave of my sins. Let it be that the mantra and theme and passion of every believer is the truth and reality of our risen Savior. We give a lot of emphasis to the death. And I think that's good. I don't think it's a bad thing to emphasize the death. But you'll find in the early New Testament church, there was always a greater emphasis placed on the resurrection than on the death. A lot of people had died but hadn't nobody ever raised themselves from the grave. And that was the great keystone doctrine and truth. That was the thing that drove and informed and shaped their life was the truth of the resurrection. So I ask you this question in closing. Are you living in resurrection power? 
Has the resurrected Savior given peace to your worry? Or are you just running around like a chicken with your head cut off, discouraged, frustrated, worried about everybody else with your eyes off of your task, your responsibility, letting every problem in the world pile in on top of you? Say, preacher, what do I do? Crawl up on this altar and say, Lord, help me to get my eyes back on you. Help me to recognize that I'm not here to honor your memory. I'm here to serve you as my master. And I don't have to worry about what everybody else does. If I'll get my eyes on you and make sure I'm living right, I'm pleasing you, I'm doing what you expect, then I can find peace and contentment there. It can give passion to your worship. Can I make a... I hope you'll understand what I'm about to say. And I, I mean this, I say this as a pastor. I am, I am not the voice of experience. But I think I can say I'm not really a novice anymore either. And I've seen a lot of people in almost nine years come and go. And you know that the majority of the time when folks go, they might have a thousand reasons, but you know what most of the time the reason is at the end of the day? Their worship died. And it's not that they're bad people. It's not that they don't love God, but they've allowed themselves to grow stale and church has just become an obligation. It's just something that they do. And you know what most of the time it started with? They went from being active worshipers to just being attentive spectators. They came not to meet with the Lord, but because that's what you do on Sunday. They came not to hear from heaven, but to hear from the preacher. They came just because, well, that's where they go to church and that's their job. And they abdicated their active responsibility to have their heart open, to be constantly seeking for how the Holy Ghost is speaking to them, to be constantly searching for an opportunity to worship, to give more of themselves and their life to Christ. I promise you this, if you allow yourself to become that, it won't be long, you'll be out. You'll be out. And you'll find that you may go from place to place and find a little contentment, a little excitement, a little freshness, a little newness here, a little newness there. People come here and find it. People go from here and find it other places. But you'll find that none of that will last. The only thing that really lasts is if you yoke and hit your worship up, not to the, not to the pulpit, not to the pew, but to the person of the risen Lord. And when you make your relationship not about the preacher or the church, but about the Lord, and when you allow yourself for the resurrection to give passion to your worship, or maybe you need to let the resurrection give power to your witness. And I I would dare say this, that if you're born again, it's already given power to your witness. You already have a powerful testimony. You might say, preacher, you don't know my testimony. I don't have to know it. If you're born again, it's a powerful testimony. I know God had to change you and save you. I know He did a miracle because He did a miracle in each of our lives. So here's the question. It's not whether we have a powerful testimony. The question is, are we witnessing? Are we sharing it? 